you please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 2 to 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. For this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What's in a name? That's the famous question Juliet asked in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet when heartbroken over the forbidden relationship with Romeo because she is a Capulet and he is a Montague, two families with a ferocious feud. If the man she loved had any other name, they could be together without concern, but because of Romeo's last name, they must hide their love and stay apart. It makes no sense. It's, it's just a name. It doesn't really matter. After all, that which we call a rose would smell as sweet by any other name she muses. But is that actually the case? Are names truly meaningless? Or do they matter? Well, certainly the last name Montague mattered more than Juliet realized. It connected Romeo to his extended family and represented a long, hurtful history, just as our last names connect us with our extended family and its history, whether we like it or not. But it's given names that particularly matter when they've been given careful, uh, when they've been carefully chosen to say something significant about an individual. When a name is given to a child because uh, it was a grandparent's name, or it was the name of a famous religious figure, or because the meaning of that name is maybe something the parents hope for in that child. And this was certainly the case in biblical times when names had great significance. Just think of some of the well-known names that were given to individuals by God himself, like Abraham which significantly means father of multitudes, or Peter, which means rock. And yet by far the most significant names that God ever gave in the Bible are the names that he bestowed on his son, including the four well-known names that were given to the coming Messiah through the prophet Isaiah in our text. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These names say a lot about the promised one who did come 2,000 years ago and whose birth we will be celebrating this Christmas, of course, the birth of Jesus Christ. And so in preparation for that celebration, Pastor Joe and I thought it might be a good idea to go through, take a look at each of these names in Isaiah's prophecy over the next four weeks. And we're going to begin today with the first of these names, Wonderful Counselor. 
Now, whenever I hear those words, or really any of the other names, I immediately think of Handel's Messiah number 12, and that point when the men and the women of the choir finally come together to sing with jubilation, wonderful counselor, you know it, almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. It's so good. It's, it's so jubilant. It's one of my favorite moments in the oratorio, and I just have to sing it. But what exactly does this mean? And specifically, that first name, that first word, wonderful counselor. What was Isaiah saying about the coming Messiah and Son of God, about Jesus Christ? Well, that's what we're going to now consider together. And we're going to start with the definition of this name for Jesus Christ. It was common for Hebrew names to be composed of two words, like this one. So, for example, the name Isaiah combines the verb yasha, which means to save, and yah, the name of the Lord. And so the name Isaiah means the Lord saves. Well, in this case, the first word in Hebrew is pele, which is usually translated wonderful. And it signifies something or someone extraordinary to the point of miraculous. Now, isn't that great? Isn't that so fitting for the Son of God? He is truly, literally wonderful in that way, extraordinary to the point of being miraculous. Now, this isn't the only place in Isaiah where this Hebrew word is found. It's used elsewhere for the extraordinary works of the Lord. As we see, for example, in chapter 25, Isaiah 25, verse 1. There we read, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. We also see this in Isaiah 29, verses, uh, verse 14. The Lord says, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And this word is also used this way in other parts of the Old Testament, like Isaiah 15.11 which declares, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Our Lord is the God of wonders, marvelous and miraculous, excellent and extraordinary, and so is his Son, Jesus Christ. His name shall be called Wonderful. But that's not all. There's a second Hebrew word here in the first name, Yaas which is translated counselor, and has to do with giving advice or counsel, guidance, for the purpose of devising plans. And it refers not to a therapist, as we might hear it today, but rather to a, an advisor who helps and leads. In fact, it's used in Isaiah for political and military advisors in chapter 126 and 3. Verse 3. And so the Son of God is then also one who will advise, will help, guide, lead his people. He will be a savior king who doesn't get counsel, but who rather gives counsel to others. Just like the Lord, who is all wise and all knowing, and therefore needs no counselor. As we read of a well known text in Isaiah 40, 12 to 14. Here, Isaiah says this about the Lord God. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The Apostle Paul says essentially the same thing in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsel? Answer, no one. No person, no angel, no created thing has ever counseled the creator. And that's because the Lord is omniscient. He has perfect knowledge of everything that has ever been, will ever be, or could ever be. All realities and possibilities so as to always plan perfectly. That's our God. And that's his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His name shall be called Counselor. Now, put these two words together into one name and it paints a remarkable picture of this child, this son, this divine king whom Isaiah prophesied would one day come. He is wonderful counselor, or we might say extraordinary advisor, miraculous guide. That's the first name of God's son, which is later used, those two words, as a description again for the Lord God himself. In Isaiah 29, or sorry, Isaiah 28, verse 29. Here we read, notice the same words. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Early on in my ministry, a lady who was very troubled came to me for some biblical counsel and By God's grace, I gave her some counsel, and later on, I found out that it had been incredibly helpful, and she said really solved the problem that she was facing. And I remember thinking at that point something like, wow, I'm I'm pretty good at this. I'm a wonderful counselor. Of course, I was swiftly humbled the next time someone came to me for counsel, and my advice totally flopped. There are gifted counselors, good counselors, even great counselors among us, but there is only one person who can be rightly and truthfully called wonderful counselor, and that's Jesus Christ, the Son, who, like his heavenly Father, always guides his people with the spirit of perfect wisdom. In another prophecy in Isaiah 11, 2, prophecy of the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, King, this Son, we read, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Well, with those prophecies in mind, we move on now to the demonstration of this name by Jesus Christ in history. In Isaiah 9, 2-7, our text, the prophet brings to Judah a word of hope in a hopeless time. A reassuring promise of a great light for a people who walked in darkness. Living under the godless rule of King Ahaz, the nation had spiritually deteriorated. And now Isaiah in chapter 7 and 8 had warned them of a coming invasion by the king of Assyria. That would lead to more evil and would thrust them into thick darkness. Just as we see in the end of chapter 8 verse 22. 
But it won't always be that way. God's people will not always experience wickedness and war. No, Isaiah says, one day all darkness and despair, cruelty and conflict will come to an end with the coming of a special child, a son who will be given to the world by God and will set up his perfect kingdom of justice and righteousness on the earth as it is in heaven. That's what Isaiah 9, 2 to 7 prophesied. And you know what? 700 years later, it began to be fulfilled at the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, whose name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, how exactly did Jesus fulfill this over 2,000 years ago? How did he demonstrate this particular name while he was here? Well, if we just survey his earthly life and ministry in the gospel accounts, we, we see it all over. First, as a boy, he increased in wisdom, Luke 2.42, as he studied in the temple. Then, just prior to his ministry, he outwitted Satan with his incredible knowledge of the Word of God in Luke 4, 1-13. And shortly after this, he then preached in his hometown synagogue and amazed them all, we read in chapter 4, 22, with the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Next, Jesus gave what is probably the most famous sermon that has ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded most fully in Matthew 5-7. to It's full of such great wisdom and spiritual insight that even people who do not believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God nevertheless admire this teaching. Has anyone ever given such wonderful counselor as, counsel as Jesus did in that sermon on matters like how to be truly blessed, how to treat your neighbor, how to fast, give, and pray, how to not be anxious, how to be no a false teacher, how to build one's life upon a solid foundation. There's no one who's ever come close. But there's more. Jesus answered genuine inquirers, excuse me, in John 3. Uh, he engaged with notorious sinners, John 4. He debated with hostile leaders, John 5 to 12. He instructed his disciples, John 13 to 16, and prayed for his future church in John 17 with incomparable intelligence and insight. He always knew the right thing to say at just the right time, whether to his friends or to his foes. In fact, when under a harsh, hate-filled interrogation in John 18 to 19, he never stuttered or misspoke or lost his composure, but rather he spoke shrewdly and sensibly throughout. Yet most significantly, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, and particularly this name, by always speaking God's word. The truth that sets sinners free, John 8, 30 to 30. Because he is in himself the way, the truth, and the life, who promises to lead us to the Father, as we see there in John 14, 6, and also promised to send the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, who will guide us into all truth, John 16, 13. Now, we could go on, but I think the point's been made. At the first coming of Christ, he demonstrated in countless ways that he truly is the promised, wonderful counselor. Which is why Paul said of him in Colossians 2, 2, he is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom 
and knowledge. And yet how much more will this be true when he comes again, teaching his people the truth for all eternity in the university of the kingdom of God? And what a day that's going to be. But for now, we must finally consider the difference this name should make in our lives through Jesus Christ today, which I think should be pretty obvious by now. If he is wonderful counselor, then we who by faith follow him should naturally go to Jesus for the counsel we need in our lives. We need to look to Jesus to lead us always, every day. We should go to him and his word for guidance, asking in prayer for the wisdom that we need to do his will. Especially when big questions arise and big problems come our way and we don't know what to do. We're not sure which way to go. After all, our all-wise Lord and Savior promises that if we ask for wisdom by faith, he will always give it to us. That's what James says in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. What an incredible promise. That is so unambiguous, and yet, let's be honest, is sadly so underused. Let me ask you a question. When you need advice... Where do you go first? Well, we see in chapter 8, verse 19, that the people of Judah were going to mediums and necromancers to get supernatural information and instruction they desired. Just like many today, we'll we'll go to mediums and, and psychics and that sort of thing. Now, I would guess that's not true for most of us. Rather, we would probably first go to a spouse or a trusted friend or a parent which is a good thing. The Bible commends this. I mean, just read the book of Proverbs. It's all over. We are told that the wise person seeks out the counsel and advice of other wise people. But considering the promise of God to always give us the divine wisdom, the perfect wisdom and leading and guidance that we need when we simply ask, should we not first and foremost always go to him? and to his son, our wonderful counselor. Of course we should, right? That that should be our instinct immediately. I'm in a difficult situation. I don't know what to do. There's so many different contingencies. I'm getting different information from all these different places. What in the world am I supposed to do? Our first instinct should be to go directly to the Lord Jesus Christ for the wisdom he promises to give. However, that's often easier said than done, especially when It's a complicated matter that requires a lot of talking and thinking through the issues, and therefore a lot of time. That's why I have personally made it my practice, and I just want to commend this to you, to to take time every so often, maybe just an hour or two. Sometimes if it's a really big thing, I'll take even half a day if I can make a way to do that. And then what I do is just talk it through with God taking as much time as I need to do that. And in the same way, I would talk things through with my wife or with an older trusted friend. Now, what does that look like? Well, 
even though, of course, the Lord already knows it all, what I do is I explain the situation to him in detail. I then walk through all the contingencies, the, the pros and cons of possible actions. I tell him how I'm feeling, that, you know, this is what I, I feel like I would like to do, though I'm not sure that that necessarily is what I should do. I, I work through then my biblical and practical reasoning. I express my concerns and fears to him. I let him know what maybe others have said. And then I ask for wisdom and I, and I lay it at his feet. And you know what? Just as he promised, the Lord always gives me the wisdom and leading and guidance that I've asked for. Not necessarily right away, but inevitably, he brings to mind relevant scriptures or reminds me of past experiences or of uh, wise counsel from others and ultimately gives me a clear sense of direction and a supernatural peace about what course of action to take. It's that simple. That's what we all can do with the Lord. If we lack wisdom and we want wisdom in any given situation, we need to just go to Jesus, the wonderful counselor. And he promises to give us the wisdom, the guidance, the leading, the counsel we need. Just talk it through and ask him to show you the way. Like King Solomon, who asked for wisdom to lead his nation and he received it, 1 Kings 3. And Daniel, who, who asked for wisdom to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and received it in Daniel 2. And all the other countless stories from scripture and, and church history of ministers and missionaries, parents and politicians, educators and entrepreneurs who asked for wisdom and received it from the Lord. Jesus did it for them. And Jesus will do the same for us if we just ask in faith. Talking it through with him, looking for his leading. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2 verse 6. George Mueller had a big problem. He and his wife Mary had started an orphanage in 19th century England where no such Christian ministries existed at that time. And it was a great success. Within a short time, they had four houses full of kids who were sheltered, fed, clothed, educated, and taught the word of God. But then it happened. The, the neighbors had grown weary of the noise and the nuisance, the time and trouble of having 120 orphans living in their residential neighborhood. And so Mueller and the orphans were asked to leave. But, but where else would they go? Well, they had no money. They had no prospects. But George Mueller did not worry. Instead, he and his wife and the rest of their staff dealt with this situation, with these unknowns, in the same way they had dealt with all others, with prayer. They went to the Lord to lead them and to provide, as he always had before. And this time again, he did. First, they made a list of pros and cons for possibly building a new orphanage. And after much prayer, the Lord directed them to do just that. They all had a, a sense of peace that that's what he wanted. Then for 35 days, they asked for the wisdom to know how to proceed, praying that God would give them a sign. And on the 36th day, it came. Early in the morning, with a knock on the door and a delivery of a thousand pound donation specifically for a new orphanage building, the biggest donation they'd ever got. 
Three days later, then Mary's sister came to visit and told them of an architect in, in London whom she had, almost, it seemed almost randomly, but really providentially, met and had told about the orphanage. And he immediately said he would design it for free because he had been looking for such a service opportunity. And then finally, they prayed for the wisdom to choose the right site for the new building. And a month later, a member of their congregation told them about Ashley Down, a beautiful, perfectly suited piece of land just a mile away from where they were currently living. George immediately went to visit the owner, but he wasn't in, and so George left a note with the butler. The next morning, he went again, and this time the owner was home, but he looked terrible, like he hadn't slept all night, which was exactly what had happened. And he explained, let me tell you the strangest thing. Last night when I heard you had been to visit, I decided to tell you that the price was 200 pounds an acre, a fair price. I then went to bed and about three this morning woke up. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't go back to sleep. Nor could I escape the feeling as I lay awake that I was to offer you the land for 120 pounds per acre. By breakfast, I was convinced. George was ecstatic. That was certainly a price that they could afford. And he was certain now that this was the Lord's leading, the answer to their prayer. And so they struck a deal that day providing what I think is a remarkable example of what our Christian lives can and should look like as we follow Jesus Christ, our wonderful counselor. An example of how we too should go to Jesus in whatever situation we face, knowing that just as he did for them, he will show us the way. And often in surprising ways that we didn't ask or think. Like we read in Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean in your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So church, whatever difficult situation you find yourself in today or might find yourself in tomorrow, that requires knowledge and wisdom and guidance. In light of our text and in light of that story of George Mueller as well, I encourage all of us to likewise go to Jesus because he is wonderful counselor. Maybe it's relationship issues with family or friends and you don't know what to do, how to get along with your differences, how to make wrongs right, how to reconcile, go to Jesus, your wonderful counselor. Maybe it's financial difficulties you're facing. You've lost your job, you're, you're on disability, an investment you made went south, you can't get out of debt, there seems to be no way out, friend, go to Jesus. He is wonderful counselor. Maybe it's a health problem you're suffering through. Chronic back pain, arthritis, migraines, heart disease, cancer, COVID, and you don't know what treatment you should take. Go to Jesus. He is wonderful counselor. Maybe it's a, a spiritual struggle you're experiencing. Backsliding, worldliness, doubts, 
You're unsure how to overcome persistent sin. You have a terrible time praying. You can't understand much of the Bible. Maybe you're not sure exactly how to gain this gift of eternal life that Jesus offers. Go to Jesus. He is wonderful counselor. Or maybe it's just a, a general need for direction you're dealing with. Where do I go to school? What career path should I take? Who should I marry? How many kids should we have? Where should I live? What should I, how should I buy? When should I retire? All those sorts of things. And the answer again is so simple. Go to Jesus because he is wonderful counselor and he promises to give us the wisdom we need when we ask. So let's go to Jesus now in prayer and thank him for that. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for your precious word and for the precious promises we see throughout. We're thankful, Lord, that as our wonderful counselor, we can go to you for wisdom and we can trust that you will give it to us. You'll show us the way. You'll lead us by your word and by the prompting of your spirit and through the counsel of others. And we will know what to do. We will know how to do your will for your glory. Thank you for that. What an incredible gift. Lord, what would we do without you if we couldn't go to you, this perfect source of wisdom in a world where it seems increasingly difficult to find true wisdom and understanding and information? Thank you for that, Lord. And I just pray now that you would increasingly help us to go to you first for the counsel we need. And that this Christmas, as we continue to prepare for that celebration and think of your first coming, that we would remember as we do so that you are the child, the son who was given, whose name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. We pray this in your name. Amen.